Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Meow Ludo Meow Meow talks about his adventures with an implanted Sydney transport card. And Sonda Fronson concludes his chat about zero carbon energy for New South Wales. But first up, here's news of contactless transport. Ticketless tickets! Transport for New South Wales has been trialling the use of contactless near-field communication tap-and-go credit and debit cards as an alternative to buying and putting cash on an Opal transport card. They call them contactless cards, but they only work on contact. They work by communicating with the radio signal generated by a reader. You can travel on the ferry and light rail using American Express, MasterCard or Visa cards, with other transport coming online as the trial expands. The problem they didn't anticipate despite years of planning is that if you don't have to carry a ticket, then they can't verify that you've paid your fare. You can also travel the transport system without a ticket by tapping on and off using your phone's ability to substitute for a credit or debit card as a mobile wallet. This extends to your smartwatch and even your tablet. Transit officers would have to check your banking records or search through your phone's banking apps to find the records of your payments. Neither would be acceptable invasions of privacy to passengers. Even worse, banks don't usually update your account for up to seven days after you've made a payment. So even if you didn't mind the nice uniform people pawing through your phone for your financial history, they still couldn't tell if you'd actually paid. It's also dubious whether the laws about travelling with a valid ticket can apply when you're told by Transport for New South Wales that you no longer have to carry any sort of ticket at all. If the transit officer can't check that you've paid, anyone could just claim to have paid with their phone or credit or debit card and get out of paying the fare. If Meow Ludo Meow Meow had implanted a debit card into his hand and the trains had been part of the trial at the time he was travelling, Transport for New South Wales would have had an even harder time trying to prosecute him. The startup company Inamo have been working with Opal to create waterproof smartwatches, keyrings and sunglasses as payment devices that also let you travel the Transport for New South Wales system without carrying a ticket. In December 2017, frustrated with the lack of real support from Transport for New South Wales, CEO Peter Colbert hacked his Curl smartwatch to work as an Opal card. Transport for New South Wales did not try to prosecute him, as they did Meow. Currently, you can use credit or debit cards or your phone wallet to travel on light rail and ferries in Sydney without carrying an Opal ticket. 
and without transit officers being able to confirm your fare has been paid, and definitely without you fulfilling your legal obligation to carry a valid ticket. Transport for New South Wales plans to include trains in the trial by December 2018 and buses in 2019. Ultimately, the only solution may be to put card reading gates everywhere, fire the transit officers and remove the law that requires you to carry a valid ticket while travelling. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Meow Ludo Meow Meow gained international fame as the biohacker who had a New South Wales Transport Opal card chip surgically implanted in his hand. Shortly after all the TV, radio and print interviews first happened, he was taken to court by Transport for New South Wales. After the last time I interviewed him about his transport adventures, I had thought that since Meow had definitely paid his fare, and since his Opal card was surgically implanted in his hand, he was definitely carrying a ticket. So it should have been a simple case. Yet it wasn't simple at all. I was even more confused by why his lawyer had asked him to plead guilty, when it looked like he should have won easily. I had thought Electronic Frontiers Australia were helping with legal advice. Then Meow lost the case, and the judge reportedly said that she felt obliged to apply a penalty because he pleaded guilty. Then he won on appeal. I began by asking Meow to help me understand the legal side of things. So I was represented by two separate people for a start. So that this is where it gets a little bit complicated. The first person advised me to plead not guilty. The second guy advised me to plead guilty. And that there's reasoning for this. Now, on the, it wasn't EFA, but I did speak with EFF during this, which is kind of interesting. I visited their offices in San Francisco, which was an awesome experience and I highly recommend it. On that note as well, you said that because I pled guilty, she was obliged to give me a penalty. That's not necessarily the case. So we have this thing called Section 10. And Section 10 is a section of the Constitution that says if you plead guilty, they can assign no, no conviction. So, and this, is, this will be very important as, as we go through this case a little bit. So the first time I was advised to plead not guilty. Now, this was by a lawyer who uh, deals a lot with fines, a lot with kind of pretty simple criminal law. They're an amazing company. They're very socially active. They do a lot of pro bono representation. They advised that I plead not guilty because his interpretation said that he didn't believe I'd committed an offence. We entered the plea and then we went back to court the second time. So once the plea was entered, there was no more court that day. You just enter a plea and then, and then I leave. During that time, my case got picked up by some media and I actually got offered pro bono representation by senior counsel, which is the highest level of lawyer you can have in this country. They call them silks because they wear the silky headdresses. And under advisement of a senior counsel lawyer, I was represented by a barrister, Nick Broadbent, who had done a master's in bioethics and he was particularly interested in taking this case. 
he advised that I plead guilty. And the reason for this is that his understanding of the law said that I had committed an offence the way that the law was written. And this wasn't whether I was carrying a ticket or not. It was whether I was carrying a valid ticket. And this is where it gets complicated. I know way more about transport law than I had ever wanted to learn. And there's two sections of law. So there is the Public Transport Act. And then there is the gazetted rules of Transport New South Wales. And basically, when, this means that a company, Transport New South Wales, can write a set of rules. And when they get gazetted, they become law. So there's, there's two levels of law here. There's one which is a, a national law. And then there's one which is another law that a, you know, kind of, I'm not sure whether they're public or government, they, they were able to write these laws in, which is important, you know. And it has more to do with the running of the Sydney Transport Network than an overarching national policy about what a smart card is. But my case has the kind of local laws be very specific about what's a valid ticket. And then you have this national one, which says what a smart card is and what that means in the context of these laws. So there's two bits of law kind of interacting. And under that, I'm kind of guilty under one and kind of not guilty under another, or maybe explicitly not guilty under another. But because we have to try it how the laws are now, I had to plead guilty. I could have changed that law by taking it to the Supreme Court. That would have been a much more complicated case that we didn't end up going through because of the outcome of this. So I went to court and I was charged under two offences. One was travelling without a valid ticket. The other was failing to present a ticket upon inspection. Now, the judge, on the first time I went to court, she gave me a section 10 under the producing a valid ticket for inspection. The reason for this was that it was a little bit complicated. So I was worried that if they scanned my hand, that they would cancel it. So basically, even though I might've been guilty, I had valid reason for doing so, which means I can get a section 10. But she ruled that it wasn't a valid ticket. And when we went to court the second time, a higher judge. So the appeals go to a higher judge who has a kind of more nuanced understanding of the law generally. And I want to just say as well, I, in, in all cases, I respect the judge's decision. It's very important. I don't want to be in contempt of law, but has a different understanding and has a, a more nuanced kind of approach to some of the arguments and is expected to. So a lower judge or a judge in a district court is, is expected to maybe follow the, the law by the book. But if there's an appeal, they can take into account more of the circumstances. And in this case, she said, listen, he basically took a plastic wrapper off the card. I don't think that that is enough to say that this should be worthy of a thousand dollar charge. But I, she wants to add, there are extenuating circumstances in this case. This is a very unusual case. And she says, I can't stress enough how unusual this case is. And sometimes people call a section 10, a slap on the wrist and I don't do it again. And I think that's especially pertinent in this conversation because I don't think if I went and did the same thing, I would get the same leniency for anyone who wants to try it at home. But it did show kind of a social barometer as to where the public sits on this, which is as long as you're not trying to game the system, they don't think you're doing anything wrong, which is in contrast to the laws of Transport New South Wales and Opal that have basically said, unless you follow our laws to the T, we're going to fine you. And do you have any ideas about why Opal and Sydney Transport cared because they knew you were paying so you weren't trying to get out of you paying your fare they knew also that you were in the tracking system so they didn't think you were trying to avoid their surveillance so why should they care i think that's the the six hundred thousand dollar question that nobody ever answered and we still don't know 
we can hypothesize. I think all the listeners can have a bit of a think about what would make a government so keen to have you follow the rules to the T rather than just broadly be paying for your fare. And maybe it's because there's, there's something underlying it, which is that they want to basically be able to prove in court that everyone has to follow the rules, that they'd be worried about if you don't have to follow the rules, what other rules don't you have to follow? And I think this is a case where the legislation is way more overarching than it should be. And realistically, we should vote to repeal some of that and give away more freedoms. Because if we look at all the way that we've gone from paper tickets to mandatory electronic tickets, you can still get single trip tickets, but the idea is that you can't, uh, for example, an example of how bad this legislation is, up until recently, I think there was a legal case that changed this. If you're a pensioner or a student, you literally have to have your name registered on your card to be able to travel, which means you have no option but to be tracked if you want concessions. So what they've done is you've got to have your name, address and your bank account linked to your card or you're not allowed to get the pensioner discount, which means you've got to be tracked. And it means despite the fact there's a cap on your daily travel of $2.50, if you don't present your card after the two fifty dollars is already well and truly paid for because you've travelled several times, they can still fine you or put you in jail and they can look over your journey, which of course for the Opal system is recorded forever online and know exactly where you've been and where you've gone, which somebody challenged in court, why can't I travel anonymously? I'm being discriminated against as a pensioner. Now, it's important to think about what type of socioeconomic class is generally represented by people who are traveling on transport. A pensioner ticket can be given to people with a disability as well. So there's many reasons you can be on the pension, but generally it's that you have some sort of social obstacle or physical obstacle or financial obstacle that stops you from having as much money as everybody else. So this is, we're looking at a, a class of people that are already disadvantaged and the government's tracking them. They aren't necessarily tracking the, the wealthy or the advantaged. So there is a form of discrimination that exists there. And we need to be asking the question as to why these people are being tracked and why nobody else. And it, it, I'm, I know exactly why it is. <laughs> well, I don't think the bank robbers are taking the train. No, most certainly not. And we do see the same kind of tracking done, though, in cars, where we used to have cash booths and now we only have e-tags. And if you choose not to pay via an e-tag, a little electronic device that sits in your car, you have to pay an administration fee that is disproportionate to the amount of administration that it takes to pay the fine. So a $2 fare becomes a $22 fare because of a $20 administration fee. So if you collect 10 fines and you pay them all at once, you pay 10 administration fees, even though the administration is the same. So I, th I think that there is a worry, especially when we're moving to things like a cashless society, about what freedoms are taken away from us when this happens. Like I'm a big fan of everyone getting microchipped, but I'm only a big fan of everyone getting microchipped with the social liberties that come with the things that I'm pushing for, which is that citizens pushing not to be tracked certain ways. And the other thing that's inconsistent with Opal and the Sydney Transport idea that it was bad for you to have an implant to be able to wave in front of a sensor instead of using your card is that this year they changed the rules so that you can use a Visa card instead of an Opal card. And of course, Visa allow you to use your phone or your watch as a substitute Visa card or Opal card and they don't care. 
So you can still wave your arm if you're wearing that sort of watch and it'll still work. And ultimately you could have a little Android computer implant and that would be completely legal as long as Visa agreed. Um, it seems inconsistent. It's almost like there's a rule for big business and a rule for individuals. That was Meow Ludo Disco Gamma Meow Meow, founder of the Biofoundry Citizen Science Biohacking Lab in Sydney. You can find the Biofoundry online at foundry.bio. When will the stars align for zero carbon energy in New South Wales? Sonda Fronson continues the conversation with me at the Central Park Food Court. I asked him what was the first thing he noticed when he looked at the New South Wales power system. When I first arrived here in Australia and, and started looking into the energy system, I was very surprised to find that so much energy in New South Wales still comes from coal because you have world-class solar and wind. And when we look at the technical possibilities, yeah, it's possible to run the whole system on solar and wind, even possibly tidal energy, geothermal energy, etc. But you don't have to use fossil fuels. Then when we look at economics, there's a lot of debate going on. And I looked into the numbers and these numbers will never satisfy everyone. Because in my opinion, economics is a far more social science than hardcore beta science. So I made price predicting curves. For coal, oil and gas, you're highly dependent on world market prices. So there's so many factors influencing these world market prices. For gas, for example, New South Wales built a lot of gas terminals. That's why the New South Wales gas price is now linked to the world's gas price. And those prices go up and down depending on the weather in Asia somewhere. Oil prices go up and down depending on how the shaykh in, in maybe Saudi Arabia feels at the moment. So these things are really hard to predict. So my philosophy or my, my research on prices is more or less uh, concluded by saying it's, it's also how we talk about these systems. So when we see more solar and people talk more about solar and wind or renewables in general, banks are keener to lend money. So rates for loans go down. More people are going to build it because prices of these technologies go down. People see them more, so the demand of them goes up and people trust them more, so the prices go down. And these are like positive feedback loops, which can rapidly bring prices down. And that's what you see for solar, for example, in the past years in, in Sydney. The opposite plays out for fossil fuels. So by signing these these contracts, these climate agreements, the Paris Climate Agreement is the most famous one, banks will become more careful in funding fossil fuel projects. So prices of the products go up, less are built, more climate agreements are signed. So this is also a positive feedback loop, so-called positive feedback loop, but having a negative effect on the coal price or on the coal generation price. And you're in the position now in Australia that the coal-fired plants are more or less on top of the mines. None of the prices will beat your current coal generation. But when we look at new-to-be-built generation, we see that solar and wind are cheapest. Refurbishing is an option that more or less competes with wind and solar prices. Then you could go to gas generation. You could go into new coal. 
so not refurbished but completely new. There's technologies out there where the CO2 emissions of the coal-fired power plant will be stored or used elsewhere. This is called carbon capture and storage. Coal with carbon capture and storage is at the moment predicted to be really expensive, but hard to tell what prices really do because it's not built yet. And that's where we look at more or less to predict prices, what is built. So new coal is not built in the past years in Australia, so really hard to predict what prices will do. And also this carbon capture and storage technology is very new. Like solar, when we start talking about it, when we start deploying it, prices could go rapidly down. So I don't rule it out, but I think when we look at the current situation, no coal generation will be built in Australia anymore. And there is another thing, coal prices are rather good at the moment, but especially for shipping them abroad. So what these coal mines rather do is mix the low quality coal used for domestic use with high quality coal and ship it for a higher price. So the domestic market is not even interesting for them. And gas as well. Gas can be sold really expensive beyond borders of Australia. That's what the companies will likely do. So what happens, gas prices went up. Gas more or less sets the price sometimes for the wholesale market by means of that the wholesale market price goes up translating in higher consumer prices so this all ties together and i think yeah looking at, at the price of things it's really how we talk about it and what we really want so if we want cleaner energy it could be the cheapest and it's not about what's happening in politics now a lot of debate to mention the other point politics indeed i as, let's say, outsider, I have no stake, I cannot vote in Australia, I was not paid to do this research. I think politics make kind of a mess. And it's for me really stupid to, to play this political game over the energy system because it's such a vital part of your economy. So politics say a lot of contradicting arguments from both parties, from both sides. Turnbull resigned possibly partly because of the energy discussions. Other politicians have big stakes in coal companies. Yeah, do they, do they represent the nation or do they represent their own bank? Which is always a question. So what are the stakes there? So yeah, going to the plastic bag example, where the empowerment really came from the people. Looking at politics, I think what they do is, is not in favor of the nation. So yeah, empower yourself and disrupt it. Disrupt the system. Much like the internet movement, Wikipedia, open source, etc. We could take charge. People could take charge. You could take charge of your own energy bill and disrupt the system, but don't disrupt it too much because also your uh, fridge runs on it, etc. So I would call for smart management of these new technologies in an ever decentralizing world. Sonder, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on. That was Sonder Fronson, charting the zero carbon energy future for New South Wales. I've been around a lot and talked with some of these research men, and they won't make predictions because they deal only in facts. But they're on their way to new ideas, new things that will astonish us when they are announced. For instance, one research man said recently, We have discovered how to manufacture rubber 
from coal, limestone, salt, and water. Out of air, water, and coal, we produce a fertilizer for which Americans formerly had to travel thousands of miles. In coal, we have found the colors of the rainbow and the perfumes of nature's sweetest flowers. Chemistry is responsible, too, for the gossamer-like threads of these new stockings. By a miracle of modern science, such commonplace things as coal, water, and air have been transformed into threads more elastic than silk, spun from filaments even finer than those of a spider's web, yet many times as strong. It's a bewildering future, all right. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email with a question that I can answer on the show. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons supporting the show at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound and fact-checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 26 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, and 7LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com, that's www.diffusionradio.com, and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.